because hmm. the believers in Somalia were killed for who they worked for, and they were killed for who they worshiped with, and they 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 were killed because they were given a a twelve pound Somali Bible that they could not securely handle. And I submit to you that being killed for being caught with a big green Somali Bible is not the same as being killed for who Jesus is. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with author and missionary Nick Ripkin. Here's the question. How should we respond to persecution? Honestly, we're terrible at dealing with even the thought of it. Because in the West, we don't think of persecution that much. It's always over there. Or if we do address it, we have some political idea that we feel that has been placed upon us, keeping us from practicing our faith in the way that we feel is God honoring. I'm not exactly sure that's the same thing. I mean, what if persecution is the means God wants to use to make his gospel known to the end of the earth. See, this is what I love about Nick Ripkin. He challenges how we view it. We look at persecution on a surface level, like an armchair quarterback removed from the action, sitting comfortably at our desks as brothers and sisters around the world lose their homes, their power, reputation, their families, perhaps food, freedom, and their very lives. Honestly, we really don't know much about it personally, experientially, at least in the West. Now, I know that there are those who are listening in India and in Pakistan and Malaysia and Indonesia. And you have a different idea of what persecution really is. This is what I appreciate about Nick. He changes how we view it. He reminds us that Jesus told us that we would we would be as sheep among wolves. Honestly, that's not a pleasant thought. For it conveys this image of vulnerability, powerlessness, danger, susceptibility, and the like. If we're honest, we would rather be like lions among wolves, right? Strong. Victorious, powerful, ready to pounce. Nevertheless, Jesus' metaphor is clear. We go as powerless, not the powerful. I wanted to talk to Nick because he is a guy who takes the Bible seriously. And he likes to shed light on texts that we often want to forget. And today, he's going to shine a light on what the Bible says about persecution. Happy listening. Nick, welcome back to Apollo Swattered. Thank you, Travis. How cold is it where you're at right now? Oh, it's uh, it's 18 with a chill factor of zero, one, something like that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Florida. <laughs> true but it got cold here the other day we actually had freezing and frost that's on the windows for about an hour that. that's about it but still yeah that's tough for florida <laughs> it is whole place shuts down yep. <laughs> but here we go we're going to do a new segment because you've been on the show before we're going to call this favorite four are you ready right. for the favorite four all right brother here we go favorite tv show or movie of all time mash okay good that's that's a did you watch every episode did you watch the final episode when we were overseas we actually bought the dvd set and uh ruth and i watched them uh we treat ourselves uh to one episode a day and we've gone through all of them <laughs> I, uh, I uh i see myself as hawkeye pierce but uh uh, uh but i i think just that uh covert uh 
loyal opposition type person. It's good. I like yeah. that. All right. Besides the Bible, favorite book? Probably Leon Uris's book, Battle Cry. I don't know that book. Tell me about the book. Leon Uris is a Jewish writer. Uh, he's got a lot of great books. Exodus is another one that I just love. But he, he, he made a name for himself uh, doing a book on World War II and taking this young white kid that's sort of like you and I when mm -hmm. we were 18 years of age, just uh, idealistic and wanted to change the world and took him all through the horrors of World War II and uh, in the making of family in the Marine Corps and, and then seeing all the horrific stuff of war and, and falling in love in the midst of that. And it just, it just captures human nature. And I, I really mm. like the writer. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. I like to read about World War II, but that sounds like a fascinating read. How do you spell is. his name? U-R-I-S. L-E-O-N. Leon Uris. Okay, I'll check that out. Now, we also know that you have done a lot of interviews. You've met a lot of different leaders. Out of all the interviews you've done, what was your favorite? And I know that I'm sure every single one of them had something in it that you loved, but what's the one that just sticks with you that you kind of hold on to and go back to? Two. <clears throat> the fifth one I ever did of Dmitry in mm -hmm. Russia, the guy that had been in prison 17 years, it just changed the entire trajectory of what I found faith to be. And then the guy in Central Asia that had been a freedom fighter and killed over a hundred and some people with his own hands uh, in Central Asia and then had a radical conversion and, and just went through hell and back and, uh, and just, you know, I had to fly in. I couldn't find him for two years. And finally <laughs> he calls me out of the blue and has me fly into a country and then I had to call him and, and he had me fly into another city and then calling and then fly into a regional city and calling and then fly into a very small city and calling and get a taxi and drive into a neighborhood and call him. And he tells me to look at a certain building and go to the uh, fourth floor of that building and uh, open a door, walk in, there'd be a light shining in my face, uh, stand in front of that light and don't move. And just setting up that interview uh, was uh, horrendously difficult because of his security. But standing under that light and listening to him for six hours, a guy that had killed over 100 people, and he said, I, I took great joy of sneaking up behind an enemy soldier and cutting his throat with my big, uh, uh, it's more than a knife, it's more like a, I don't know. Um, like a machete or something? Yeah, machete thing, but sharp. And, and letting their blood run over my hands as, a, as an offering to Allah. And then just to watch how God uh, took the blood on his hands that he began to see in his sleep and his waking hours. And, and finally, he knew he was going to go insane and take his life. And he dreamed and Jesus appeared to him and said, find me and I'll take the blood off and take it upon myself. And there began his journey to faith. And, and by the time I met him, oh, they had broken his bones. They had thrown him in prison. They had almost left him to freeze to death. And, and it, he was just the toughest man I'd ever met. But between him and Dimitri, they redefined what commitment and, and love for and sacrifice for Jesus really is. Mm. Mm. It's hard to transition from such a heavy subject of out of your interviews to this last question, but we're going to do it anyway. Your favorite place to visit in the U.S.? My goodness. Uh, it has to be Grand Canyon. Huh. And uh, I love, uh, we just got back from Colorado Springs. I just love Colorado, the snow and the mountains, but 
we actually were fortunate enough to take our son there, sort of like his senior trip, welcome back mm -hmm. to America, let's go to college type of thing. And we bought a car uh, for him, for a church. We flew into the East Coast, flew all the way to the West Coast from Africa, which was really dumb. And a church helped us buy a car. And then he learned to drive, driving from California to Kentucky. And I remember going through Kansas and he says, Dad, I haven't turned the wheel for 15 minutes. Dad, I haven't turned the wheel for 30 minutes. Dad, I haven't turned the wheel for 45 minutes. How am I going to learn to drive in this place? And we'd pass these little country churches. And he said, Dad, where are the people that go to these churches? I haven't seen a house for 30 miles. And But we were able to take him to Grand Canyon and take a helicopter into Grand Canyon and and that was just an awesome experience. Mm. We actually, uh, there was a, a hailstorm as we went uh, into the Grand Canyon. And, and, and then there was a rainbow from that over Grand Canyon. And then to take that helicopter into that, it was just breathtaking. That is so it, cool. One other place that I that I would love to go back to is, is, uh, is Kashmir up in, 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 in those mountains. And I lived on a lake for about two weeks in a houseboat, but hmm. uh, I couldn't live in Grand Canyon, of course, but Kashmir, my goodness, uh, the Himalayas hmm. were actually it in the lake that I stayed on. And, and you stay in these houseboats and canoes come by and like one cool canoe will have paper products and another canoe will have vegetables and and another cool canoe will, uh, you know, uh, will, will have fruit and, and or meat. And, and they even make these big islands that might be 20 feet by 20 feet that they've woven wire in, planted hmm. grass on, and they pull sheep and goats up to your houseboat, and you can buy that and have fresh meat. <laughs> but it was just an awesome experience, uh, the believers up there were very scattered and they were very alone and afraid, but mm -hmm. politics and, and the faith and the beauty of the place, I just was enamored with it. Do you miss the mission field? Oh, I, this has been the hardest two years of my life, without a doubt, without, without any doubt whatsoever. It's just been very hard. That's saying a lot though, considering the ministry ministries you've been involved in and the places you've been in. I mean, COVID has yeah. taken a hit on everybody, but I think for you, you seem to be a guy that thrives to be in the midst of it, in the thick of the fight, to be out there with people, to be engaging, and then to not be able to do that. That has to be able, that has to just really play on you, I would think. Well, to come in to the racism and materialism of America, uh, to come in to uh, we've owned a used car for 35 years. We've never really paid taxes. We never had a, a mortgage. We've never owned, uh, uh, you know, vehicles. <clears throat> so this has been a really, really hard adjustment. And then have COVID and back surgery just put me in the house for a year. Uh, so I, I go from being a, a global citizen and working in some of the hardest places on planet to being in my house and um, it's just been um, I would not wish that on anybody I, mm. I, I have been very impatient and with God on this transition well let's let's take that and talk about that because you you bring up something that I find to be not necessarily unique to you you mentioned racism and you mentioned materialism and uh, I finished reading your book, The Insanity of Obedience, and you draw both of those exact subjects out in that book. And you talk about the hardest reach to reach places in the world. That's where you've mentioned going to reach those people. But you and I had a discussion in the, the pre-show walkthrough about how hard it can be in our culture because our culture doesn't feel like it needs God or it's their own creation of God. Other cultures know exactly what they're getting into. And we've said how blessed we are, though, in this culture. God has blessed us. 
but so much so that we've delighted in the gift rather than the giver and we're lost in it. And sometimes it's harder to reach a culture that has all the gifts than those that have nothing. How do you respond to that? I mean, I think your book is such a, I don't want to say assault, meaning that it, it it's a book that challenges people's thinking. Both of, I mean, all of your books have done that, but what do you hope to have accomplished from this book? I mean, what was your background and your, who are you responding to? Because I felt like you had a different audience in mind in the insanity of obedience, which was a lot different than the insanity of God. But I know I've asked you a couple of questions. Take which whenever you want. <laughs> well, the insanity of God is inspiration and the insanity of obedience is perspiration. <laughs> there you go. That's actually a great way of classifying it. And, and we wrote Insanity of God uh, for men because men are not showing up. Like I think we said last time, we have seven single women for every one single man. Yes. On and and we're, we're actually dealing with that everywhere we go. But the, the Insanity of Obedience, brother, is, is we can't change being sheep among wolves, but we don't have to be stupid sheep. And what I find in places like Somalia and Afghanistan and the harder places, we're very foolish sheep. And, and a mistake that I would make, for instance, in a Kenya or Somalia, I mean, or Kenya or Malawi or South Africa might hinder relationship or the growth of the body of Christ. I make that same mistake in Somalia and somebody dies. And so we had 150 believers in Somalia, and all but four were killed. And something I almost never say, because it takes time to unpack it, every believer that was killed in Somalia, and I'll never take Jesus away from them, and, and because if they weren't followers of Christ, they probably would still be alive. But the timing of their death had more to do with their relationship to short-term Western Christians yeah. than it did to their relationship to Jesus. It's an interesting book because, it, like I said before, it was so different than the insanity of God. And I like how you said the insanity of God is inspiration. This was perspiration. This seemed to be more of getting down into the how-tos and dealing with the misconceptions around persecution from those in a Western standpoint. I mean, you go so far as to mention we have persecution and understanding it wrong. A Westerner reaction is get them out. Right. Stop the persecution. And you're saying, no, no, no. And, and again, you use Joseph as the example. God might be wanting to keep them in there for a reason uh, and for a period of time. And so I find you in the book and I, and I, as I was reading, I, I thought he's addressing some of the modern misconceptions not just that Westerners have, but missionaries have, mission agencies have. It's in many ways, it's a how-to manual going beneath the surface and taking people on a journey saying, I think we've understood a lot of this wrong and I want to help show you why and how. I mean, is that kind of some of the mindset that you had in going through the book and writing the book? Well, you know, some trustees once asked me when I was unpacking the premise of incentive obedience, and, and they do this, they trap you with scripture. They said, don't you believe uh, that, that God can use everything for the good? You know, like, uh, uh, do you not believe Romans eight twenty eight? And I just flippantly, because I couldn't think of anything at the moment. Yeah, but why do we make it so hard on him? But the next time, that I was asked that question by some very powerful uh, uh, individuals. I said, yeah, I believe in, in, in Romans 8, 28. And what we learn uh, from this situation in regards to how God uses everything for the good is what God teaches us through this situation. Don't you ever do this again. Because hmm. the believers in Somalia were killed for who they worked for. And they were killed for who they worshiped with. And they, 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 they were killed because they were given a 12-pound a Somali Bible that they could not securely handle. And I submit to you that being killed for being caught with a big green Somali Bible is not the same as being killed for who Jesus is. And, mm -hmm. and that is the whole point. 
being killed for whom Jesus is always brings a, a deepening, sometimes a broadening kingdom, but a, certainly a deepening, deeper kingdom. Being killed for who Nick is, 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 is all you learn from that is don't you do whatever it was that you did to get them killed. And they were killed uh, who they worship with, work with, uh, having a Bible, 100% of those who were trained to evangelize using evangelism tools that we use in Texas or, or even here in Kentucky, 100% of those people we paid to evangelize using Western ways of evangelism are dead. None of them survived it. And so it's getting workers uh, to, to look at their default setting on how we do church and how we do witness and saying, uh, you really have left the Bible on this one. Uh, mm. you, don't, you don't have a biblical foundation for doing what you do, especially as an outsider. That's a lot for, a, I think, for a lot of Westerners, because we don't think, and, and I think this is what you're trying to deal with. We don't think that the, we have a Western way of doing things. We think it's just that this is the way of doing it. And those are the massive blind spots that we have. And as you said, those are not just blind spots. They're, they're opportunities for people to get killed. This is serious stuff. And you need to rethink about your methods and how you go about things, because there's not a one size fits all here. You need to understand the culture that you're going into and the serious nature of what you're advocating. And while you think you're getting them a Bible and it's helping them, you're actually could be causing more harm than you realize. You might be hurting them in the long run, even though you think you're helping, you're actually hurting. And you need to rethink how you go about what you're doing. Is that right? I, I watched, it, it can be argued, it can be argued that it, it's never a real tragedy for a believer to get to go to heaven early. Now, I, I, that can be used as an excuse. Yeah. But in, in regards to our 16-year-old son's death, I took great comfort in, in that. But I'm looking, I'm looking blocks away, and I see a Muslim guy, because I know all the believers, uh, walking through Mogadishu carrying that big green Bible. And before I could get to him, I let the hide walked up behind him and put a gun to the back of his head and blew his brains out. And he goes to eternity without Jesus because someone gave him a Bible. Yeah. And now Western response is, oh, Ripken is against us giving Bibles out. I say, no. Uh, uh, how many, how many tracks, how many scrolls, all oh, even more than this, how many literate tools did Jesus ever use outside of the synagogue and temple? And the answer is he didn't use any of them. See, this, this is why I love your approach. Because in the church that I was serving in, in Chicagoland, we started getting people in the church that just couldn't even read. Right. And, and most, of the, the, uh, most of the stuff that I see is the Western solution is have another class, have another class, have another class. And... But you have to do ESL first. Because you have to, because, you have to actually just understand the language. Oh, here, here, here's, the, here's the one of the big ones, brother, is that we are so addicted to literacy. It's as if the power and authority of the Bible itself is predicated by literacy rather than the Holy Spirit of the living God. I don't know if you're familiar with Larry Osborne. He pastors out in San Diego. He wrote a book called Well-Intentioned Pharisee. Mm. And in the book, yeah. he, talk, he, he talks about in the book, it's a short book, but in the book, he says, basically, a lot of churches are not raising up disciples. They're trying to raise up pastors. And he said, we're giving them so much. He said, my parents could barely read. And they were some of the most faithful people I ever knew. Not to say that we don't advocate literacy. I mean, we are people of the book, but we have to be careful of not putting ourselves on certain levels. I, I used to tell my folks at church, I would say, you know, I laughed that the church of Thessalonica is planted as Paul preached there for three consecutive Sabbaths. And that's it. No more. I said, you have heard more sermons in your lifetime 
or in the you know the last few months than many of these people ever heard in a lifetime. Wow. And they were out going to make disciples. I'm not now again, I you can take that too far and say people don't need training. No, they need training. We need to do all of those different things. But I feel like our modern Western understandings of discipleship are so myopic and they don't take into consideration the people that they're interacting with, that they're regular people. These aren't theologians, not in the same sense. These are just normal everyday people that need to hear about Jesus and they want to hear the story. Tell them the story. Well, the best. Right? Am the I wrong leaders, there or what? I want to tag on that. Some of the best leaders and theologians I've ever met on the mission field couldn't read or write a word. And when you look at persecution, uh, you, you you don't have to smuggle Bibles into Saudi Arabia. See, now, listen, for me, the Bible's not negotiable. But he, here, here's the premise that I operate on. And I wrote this for one of the most well-known missiologists. I was writing a, a monthly article. And when it came to this one, they finally took it to their executive committee and to the big dog himself. And they called me and said, we believe what you're saying and what you're teaching is true, but this would generate too much heat and, and, and we can't use it. And the premise of this is God always keeps his word, the Bible, in oral forms to rapidly transmit truth. And God always, it's not negotiable, keeps his word, the Bible, in literate form to preserve the truth. So I just doubled your ability to get the Bible into hearts and minds. And, and you don't give up one page of the literate Bible, but, 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 the, but Jesus never once used a literate tool, not one time right. in the marketplace. But so you do that oral stuff so that the Bible can radically, rapidly be translated across borders. You don't have to smuggle books into Saudi Arabia when you're the container for the word of God. And believers in persecution, highly literate in the Soviet Union, in mm -hmm. China, some other places, some places almost no literacy, they have committed 70% of the stories of the Bible from Genesis through Acts to memory. Oh, so yeah. The Bible the Bible is not negotiable. Uh, the, the way it's packaged, whether it's in oral form or literate form, uh, is what we have to do both. We're only yes. doing one. But you have to find that means to help people. Even then, I remember at our church, we made sure that we had languages. We had Bibles in the heart languages of all the people that did come. Right now, again, we're in a Western context, so this is totally different. But my thing was, is yes, I want you to learn ESL, but you you need to follow Jesus in your own heart language too. You need to have Him speak to you if you can read. If you can't read, that's a different story because then we need to get into orality and somehow to to communicate. And that's what I hear you saying is is saying, hey, we need both of these. And we need to be able to read the situation. Sometimes the situation requires the person to get that that actual hard copy. But there's other times where that hard copy, if not done properly without laying a baseline first, could actually result in great harm. Um, and they may not even know Christ because of just their association with us, right? Even, even again, here, listen to the principle. Uh, you keep it in oral forms to rapidly transmit the yeah. truth and oral forms to preserve the truth. And, and it's very interesting that I wrote on paper in my Bible for 15 years. This kinds of things drive my wife crazy because I, I just can't help but to see connection of dots. Mm -hmm. And for 15 years in the Western style churches, whether it was in Cairo, Mexico mm -hmm. City, Germany, Moscow, United States, Canada, Europe, 85% of all the sermons I heard, we've heard for 15 years, the text was taken from Romans to Revelation, 85%. And if you take out Christmas and Easter, 10% of the sermons are taken from Genesis through Acts and 90%
from Romans to Revelation. And we should be doing that because who's in churches? Christians. And Romans to Revelation is believers talking to believers. Right. What's happening is us telling the stories from, Rev from Genesis through Acts in the marketplace. That's what we're not doing. We're doing the pastor teacher thing. We're not doing the evangelist church planner thing. Mm. I, I think, of course, we need the full counsel of God's word. To me, you can't even understand a lot of those passages until you understand the stories and the backgrounds behind them. Why would right. you want to teach the Old Testament? I did not come to Christ until 18. And I watched my wife when we read Romans to Revelation together. Her mind will tell her all those stories of the New Testament and Old Testament. I didn't have that on my hard drive. Yep. And so doing that proof text in Romans Revelation, and that's not a bad word. I don't have that story to tell myself. And, mm. and so you've got to tell those stories. But lost people, you're going to focus on uh, uh, Genesis through Acts. And within the believers, you're going to focus on Romans to Revelation. Romans to Revelation don't lend themselves to stories. But, oh, no, not at all. But, but, the, but, the, but the thing is, the more you're with Christians, the more you're going to be consumed by Romans to Revelation. How do you, how, how does Paul mentor Timothy? What's the role of women? What's the role of spiritual gifts? What do you do with your money? How do you prepare for the second coming when 4 billion people haven't figured out the first coming? And mm. so it, it's how do you use these two things in balance? You never give one up. You cannot give up because every culture we've been in, if you have the Bible in just oral forms, the leaders that emerge will manipulate that Bible for, for their own agenda. And there's always got to be someone looking at that literate book and saying, no, you can't do that. You can't say that. Uh, you, that preserves the truth and, and keeps us from heresies. But, but you, you can't stop those stories from going everywhere. We're getting people killed because of, of inappropriate ways of distributing the Bible without teaching people how to securely handle that. You can't say I'm against Bible distribution. I'm against getting people killed for other reasons than who Jesus is. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because... Understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. I remember being in, in uh, one of the churches that I pastored, and when I got there, they had a high regard for the Word of God. That's what they told me. As time went on, though, you found out that they had such a high regard of the Word of God that it was, I would say, bibliolatry. Uh -huh. They placed the Bible over the person of Christ. And it's the, the Bible that testifies about who Jesus is. And I think we often get lost in that. We, we put the Bible at such a high place that we forget it's testifying about Jesus. And, and that's what gets us into trouble. It's not, as you said, it's not that you're against by handing out Bibles. It's, it's not understanding the culture in which you've come into and understanding how, how you said secure, transmit, um, and share it in a way that builds the proper foundation when there are needless pains and that are happening that shouldn't happen or could easily be dismissed had they received it. And they're entering into a Christless eternity because of it. Reading the book, 
um, you have people that are under the the threat of persecution, overt persecution, or let's call it hard persecution. Okay. As, you, as you've said before, um, several different times, there is no no persecuted church or or, or you know a non persecuted church. It's just the church. And and I try to differentiate in people's minds. I might say a harder persecution where the government has come against it in a, in a very hard, violent form and a softer persecution, which is much more ideological and cultural, uh, if we can just use that temporarily. The softer and, the softer, and the what I call covert persecution is more effective. Yes, I agree with you because it's the whole... Um, the difference between 1984 and uh, a brave new world, you know, in 1984, he said people wouldn't have book, there'd be book burnings. And here, you know, in, of course, in uh, a brave new world by Aldous Huxley, he said, it's, it's more that people wouldn't read books because they wouldn't need it because they were so addicted to the pleasures that came. Oh, and wow. I think in our culture today, we have that, that is the killing us softly. The, the secularization, the materialism, uh, the, these thought processes that are we've slowly imbibed that are slowly suffocating our faith and proving it to be ineffective. Uh, uh, my friend Charlie Davis used to be the head of team. He's one of our advisory team at Apollos Watered. And he said, the church is like a 747 in the air in the West. He said, the church is like a 747 that's ran out of gas and doesn't know it yet. Oh, wow. And I think there might be some truth to that because I find that we are holding on to something that is either a cultural influence. And you mentioned that in the book uh, a, a bit, but my question is, is what do we do in our churches? Cause you also advocate and mention 90% of our, our resources and I'll forgive me if I get the stat wrong, you can correct me, but are aimed at reaching the 90% and not many of the unbelievers that are out in the world that are, that are lost. Why are our resources dedicated to those who are unbelievers and yet, I mean, not unbelievers, excuse me, the saved, right. and we're not reaching the unsaved. Do you think that because our focus has been so internal, that's one of the reasons why we've lost our fire and lost our zeal as a Western evangelical whole, let's say, not that there aren't remnants in, in there, because there are in churches, people that have that right perspective. But do you feel like that is what's happened to Western evangelicalism and why we've lost our fire right now? Or is it more of God's pruning the vine in order to make us more effective? I'm afraid repeating it might, might make listeners stop listening. But again, the fact is we get an A plus for raising up pastor teachers and a D minus raising up evangelists and church planters. About 93% of everybody baptized in our churches were born in the church. Then about 3% come in through vacation Bible school. Another 3% come in through our clergy doing a fantastic job in weddings and funerals and reaching those unreached families. And 1%, 1% comes into the body of Christ from intentionally going to the marketplace, having non-believers in our homes, being in their homes for meals and bringing them to Christ, 1%. And, and, and so we get so locked up in Romans and Revelation uh, is because we're just talking to Christians and we're just being with Christians. And so uh, to intentionally, my brother, I've asked clergy, my seminary professor, friends, and this is this is not being ugly, and 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 the body of Christ is 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 uh, is one of the greatest treasures that I have in the universe. And but but when I ask uh, leaders, how are let's just just get real, how are Caucasian Americans finding Jesus who have never once been in a church building? And we've never been, we've never received an answer, never mm -hmm. received an answer. And the way that Caucasian Americans are finding Jesus and the process that they go through to uh, belong to him is more how a Muslim and a Buddhist and a Hindu 
and a communist comes to faith than it is someone who's born in a church. So we don't even know how these people are coming to Christ because if they don't come to church, we don't reach them. So that's awesome. To me, that's the Newbegin approach. You know, Leslie Newbegin obviously advocated. He said it's he, he after he had been in India and he'd come back into the UK, he found that the UK was harder to reach than it was out in India. So it's my contention that the missionary methods that have been established in different cultures and countries are what Western leaders, evangelicals, whatever you want to label it, the modifier there or the adjective. That's what needs to be adopted and I don't think that's what seminaries and Bible colleges are advocating for. They're fighting some of the, 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 the arguments of past generations rather than the current understanding the current landscape. I, I think churches are waking up and leaders are waking up now to that they have to be able to do this, but no one really knows how. In the mission field, what did you have to do? And I say the mission field, it's a mission field that we're in now. But let's say that when you're in that culture that was not your home culture, you're not native culture, how did you have to go about making disciples in those places? Learning the language and culture is the open sesame to people's heart. And for every time you have a challenge in evangelism or church planning, is perhaps it's because you're not telling yourself the right Bible story. And mm. when you tell yourself the right biblical setting, the right story is that everyone, no exceptions, that came to Jesus in the New Testament came to Christ through a local language and local culture. No one came through translators. No one came through a, a, a third language or a Western language, if you will. And so learning the language and culture is, is the number one way of getting in their lives. And most Muslims globally, even in America, come to Christ by sharing meals in our homes, and, uh, but more likely us sharing meals in their homes that take four, six, eight hours with extended family there. Evangelism in America and globally is not brain surgery, it is time consuming, and thereby comes the rub. Mm. And our neighbors in our homes and being in their homes, it takes too much time where you live. I have talked to many, many of the larger churches, but in America, most, let me just, I'm gonna make this up, but in staffs with more, with four or more staff members, they haven't shared meals in each other's homes. Mm. And if most lost people are coming to Christ through sharing meals with people like you and I, with our kids, with our spouses, uh, uh, how are we, how are we, how would we imagine we're going to do that with non-believers when we're not doing with believers? Our culture, our, our lives are so filled COVID has changed so much. I'm sorry for shifting gears. No, it's I'm, all right. We shift gears I've all the time on this show. <laughs> I've been listening to secular people talking about what COVID taught them was about all the things they don't need. Mm. And they don't need that second salary. They want to be with their family. They want to go camping. They want to, they want to sleep out in the backyard. They, they want to have their neighbors over. And they're not, they're not going back to those jobs because they'd rather be in their community and with their kids and with their spouses and as singles in their communities, the singles have found that they don't need to spend tens of thousands of dollars on expensive alcoholic drinks in bars. They found it so much fun, more fun to have their single friends over to their apartment playing board games. Taking time, to be with lost people is the number one challenge that we have because we don't have the time. We don't have the time, which I would agree with. I remember talking to Ruth and she said the same thing, busyness. We're too busy. And we have adopted a view of time because we have so many different possibilities of what to do with our time. I mean, we even use terms of finance 
spending time, wasting time, investing time. We've used that for our time. Time has become our most valuable and precious resource because we have so many things that are competing for it. And we think in the West that we have to do everything. We have to be involved in everything. We don't. We, we really don't. And I think COVID has brought a lot of that out, just as you've mentioned. We're starting to see the need for embodiment, to be with people, to build relationships. But in the West, I have found, and this might be because we're getting a little bit, you're, I mean, you're older than I am, um, but, Stop it. If, <laughs> but if you go back, I think people had a harder time being with unbelievers because unbelievers are messy and do things that other believers cringe at. That's why you don't bring them to church. <laughs> they, they come to church and they get, they get so embarrassed when they realize that the way they're dressed is not appropriate. Using yep. that curse word during a worship service is probably not appropriate. Coming with different women on different Sundays is not appropriate. And, and so uh, we wrote an article, you can Google on, online, the seven reasons why you don't bring new believers to church. Brother, it is, it, it, this is not anti-church. It's just that when the moment you bring a, a seeker, a new believer uh, to a church like the one that you and I love and the pastor that I love tremendously is that they're, they're basically told to come in, sit down, be quiet. You don't have to study the Bible because that guy up there is going to study it for you and give you what it means. You don't have to learn to sing. Somebody's going to sing over you. You don't have to learn to pray. Somebody's going to pray over you. And the moment that you come into a, a traditional worship service, uh, the people on the platform are going to be active. You're going to be passive. Ruth and I, do. we just beg that when we do our three-day workshops in churches for a weekend uh, find a room with tables get out of the sanctuary if we are forced because of space or whatever that we have to teach in the sanctuary we lose 60 percent of our interaction because people mm -hmm. are they are trained to go come in to sit down be passive uh, uh be quiet to listen and not to participate and, mm -hmm. and so it is that real just for our teaching sessions, but bringing new believers into typical church setting teaches them, I don't have to study for myself. I don't have to write my own songs. I don't have to pray. Uh, these special people are going to do this for me and I can just be a, I can be a consumer. So how do we make people be more active participants in, in the home. worship? They've, You've got to be in the, for 70% of the church globally, they meet in homes, house to house. And you can't hide there. You can't hide. And you're going to be telling your story. You're going to, if you don't sing, that someone's going to talk with you. You stumble and, and cry and, 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 and maybe even use inappropriate language, but you're going to talk honestly to God. and, 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 it's just, you've got to change the venue. I love Nick. I love Nick's heart because Nick has this allergic reaction to, to anything that keeps people from knowing who Jesus is. And oftentimes we have all of these unnecessary hoops or expectations that we communicate through our body languages, what we say to people all the time. We use it as a means oftentimes to keep them down and to elevate ourselves. But when we realize that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that's you and me, then that changes the game. It helps us to see God or see them through different eyes, eyes of patience, eyes that understand that there's a process to these things. Some people, when they came to Jesus Christ, they were in darkness and then they came into the light, like a light switch. It was on and it was off. Others of us, though, are on a dimmer switch. It's taken a while. It's been a longer process. And let me tell you, that process is messy. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. And we read this, Without oxen, a stable stays clean, 
but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. Allow me to give you the Travis Michael Fleming version. Without people, it's easy. Church isn't messy. But you need those people to really reach the world and expand the kingdom of God. Deal Moody once said that God takes a crooked stick and can make a straight line. He uses us. Each one of us is broken in a different way, and God uses us. I think that the takeaway from today's episode is for us to rethink a bit on how we go about church. And are we creating unnecessary problems and barriers keeping people from saving faith in Jesus? And I want to encourage you and let you know that if this episode has been a benefit to you so that you can water your world. And I really hope and pray that it is because God has placed you in the world that you're in and God has called us to help you water your world where you are. Then please share this episode with other people. Go to your podcast platform, share it. Also rate us and Give us a review because it helps other people find this show. And we are looking for watering partners and we need your help. We can't create content like this without your help. And we're about 25% to our goal. And we need and are looking for watering partners to help us water the world for Jesus Christ. And if you want to do that, go online to apolloswater.org and in the upper right hand corner, click support us. And then pick whatever amount you want. And a thank you in advance for doing so. I also want to thank our Apollos Watered team. Kevin, Rebecca, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, and Audrey. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.